Well, good morning. My name is Justin Craig. I am the family minister here at Windsor Road. And uh, this morning we are continuing our series on our journey towards Easter. Uh, We're not just preparing uh, our facility and and what God is going to do here uh, on Easter morning, but we're also in the process of preparing our hearts uh, as we walk through this series called Jesus Died For. Now this morning I wanted to start by by letting you guys know that there is something that I hate more than anything else in the world and it is being wrong. How many of you guys can relate to that? Anybody? Anybody? There's a few hands. There's some spouses looking at each other going, you should be raising your hand. I saw you. I don't like being wrong. When I was a child, I felt like my dad would always invite me in to be a part of a project that he was working on. My dad, very handy, very much a Bob Vila. I was more of a Bob the Builder, but on just like a really small scale because Bob's talented and it, you know, it just wasn't working. And so I remember one project, my dad's like, all right, I got the nail all set. You guys just, 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 just hammer. I'm like, okay. So I'm hammering it. I'm hammering it. And the nail bends because I'm really good at hammering it. Evidently, my dad's like, no, you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, well, fine. I just don't want to do it anymore. You do it. Because my default is when I'm told that I'm doing it wrong, I just hand it over to somebody else. Be like, well, here, you take care of that. And the same is true with my marriage um, and with my kids. Uh, my wife, Stephanie, uh, is fantastic. Uh, she is uh, a wonderful educator, uh, and she is a wonderful mother. She is a wonderful wife, and she is just awesome. And I shared all this in here with her. She was sitting in the first couple rows, first service, so I was getting some points. It was great. Uh, and so now I'm hoping to record in the podcast so that she can hear it again, because this is just great. She is awesome, and we both love to read. We both like spending our spare time reading. She generally reads the fiction books, and I generally don't care about those at all. Uh, But I like to read, like, the the Christian building, the Christian discipleship books. I like to read commentaries and really fun stuff like that. And uh, there was one time Stephanie was reading a nonfiction book, and it's right up here. It's called Loving the Little Years, Motherhood in the Trenches. Now, I felt like she was reading this book for herself, but in, in theory, maybe she was reading it for me because it felt like, this didn't happen, but it felt like she was following me with this book, okay? I was in the middle of a few-week stretch where I was making some really good parenting decisions, okay? My, my energy level was low, my patience level was low, and my anger level really high, okay? And so my kids, I love my kids. I've got three beautiful daughters. They are awesome, But sometimes kids just know how to, "Mm," you know, and it's like, okay, quit pushing my buttons. This is irritating. But, you know, I I, I remember um, losing my cool one time with our kids, and I I shouted at them, go get your pajamas on. They're like, Dad, but it's 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm like, go put your pajamas on. Don't argue with me. I'm the dad. Go put your pajamas on. They were, you know, like not sharing or, or they were not being kind to each other. And so kindness wasn't the first thing out of their mouth. Certainly wasn't going to be the first thing out of mine. So I tell them, I yell at them, go put, go put your pajamas on. So they go upstairs and as they go away, Stephanie then says to me, she goes, hey, are you okay? You don't seem okay. You don't seem like yourself. And I'm like, really? What well, gave it away? And uh, she, uh, you know, because I'm snarky when I'm, when I'm, angry okay it's just not a good it's not a good picture and so I I, I you know I, I told her I was like you know I, I didn't get a bunch of stuff done on my checklist today at work you know uh, somebody said something that just kind of made me mad or I, I just I, I just I'm not in a good mood and she goes you know I've been reading this book 
loving the little years. And I, I ran across this quote today, and I just, I have to share it with you. So it's up here on the screen. It says, make sure that before you start rebuking your children, your own heart is in order. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. And you are 10 minutes late because that would have been awesome. But you missed the party, lady. Like, I already screamed. They're already putting their pajamas on. I'm going to go out and mow the yard. Okay? And, and she just missed the boat. Now, this, I'd like to say that that was the only occasion that this happened. It was not. Um, I've also been in lots of positions where my kids just upset me by the little things they do. Having three girls, our house generally turns into a musical at some point during the day. It's, 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 and it's about normal things. It's about like, I got my bowl, and now I got my spoon, but I'm going to lean on the drawer a little bit to irritate Dad. And I'm, I got my spoon, and then like, there's, there's like, there's like ribbons and there's costumes that happen and, and sometimes that just happens at the wrong point and I, again, little patience, lots of anger and just things come out and so I, I raise my voice to them. Not because they're being disobedient but because they're kind of annoying a little bit and I just I can't stand that. And so then Stephanie, again, in the privacy of a, of a couple conversation, not for the kids to hear, goes, hey, so remember that book I've been reading? It's called Loving the Little Years. I'm like, mm-hmm, I'm familiar with it. And she goes, she goes, check out this quote. It's so good. Christian child rearing is a pastoral pursuit, not an organizational challenge. And I'm like, mm, you're late again, huh? That's cool. That's great. You should probably be on time for one of these encounters so that I could actually learn something before I blow up at our kids. Okay? I also recall a moment where our oldest was in trouble for something, probably unreasonably in trouble. And she asked me why I was in trouble. So I passed down to her the, the parenting advice given down to me from my parents, which has probably been passed down for generation to generation. She asked me why she was in trouble, and I said, because I said so. Now you sit down, because I said so. I'm the dad. I may not be much taller than you, but I am the dad. <laughs> because I said so. And she, again, Stephanie goes, hey, so I've been reading this book, <laughs> Loving the Little Years, and I'm just like, hmm. She goes, this is just a really good quote that I read today. I just thought you might really like it. It says, explain your decisions and always be open for their sincere questions. Thanks. Really feels like we're on the same team here. This is good. This is nice. Now, I tend to have pretty fair on unfair expectations of our kids like when we go out we'll generally go out for a daddy-daughter date so that I can put on social media that I'm a great parent and I'm not uh, because we all do that don't judge me we all do that okay so so we're out on a daddy-daughter date and I'll set up expectations I'll be like okay guys now no, no no running no screaming let's act like human beings okay and we get somewhere and we for automatically forget all of these rules and I'm like we just talked about this and so they are running around they're screaming they're yelling and you know I'm like they, they automatically forget what what the expectations are what's safe what's not and so then I lose my cool at them we come home from the daddy-daughter date and Stephanie's like oh how'd it go I'm like they are all yours I'll see you later I need to go cry in the basement for a little bit maybe I'll hammer something but then I'll probably do it wrong and so it's just like I just have one of these moments and I'm just like I don't know what to do and so finally Stephanie comes to comfort me she goes hey I've been reading I know what you've been reading we're all impressed okay reading this little book loving the little years right what do you got for me today and she goes one of the greatest kindnesses you can do for your kids is to lay out for them clear expectations and I'm like I did that they didn't listen and she goes, oh, but I wasn't done. Here's another quote. Making expectations clear is hugely important. So is making them reasonable. I said, are you about done with that book? Because I know I am. 
I know I'm not on the world's strongest man team, but I bet I could rip that book in half. Like, you just, just let me see it. Let me have it for just say, just rip. Just let me, let me just take care of it for you. It felt like this wasn't happening. It felt like she was mentally following me around with this new book, correcting me in every way that I fell short. When in reality, she was simply excited to read to me what was, hap- what was helping her. She was trying to give me some clarity where I was confused, but that confused me because I didn't know that I was confused. I thought I had it right. I thought that what I was doing was going to be helpful, not just for our kids, but for our family as a whole. I felt like I was winning at parenting when in fact I was losing, my kids were losing, and Stephanie sure wasn't losing that book. Sometimes the words I have not marinated in are the exact words that I need to hear. Sometimes the words that convict others' hearts are the exact same words that we need to convict ours. You see, the input of others is how we grow, but the input of Christ is how we change. And it can be really difficult to change when we don't know that there's something to change. If you guys have your scriptures, we'll be in John chapter 3 this morning. If you're looking for the Bible in front of you, we are actually on a specific page, 887 and 888. I will be reading from the ESV this morning. John chapter 3 is a, is a really neat story that's actually just the beginning story of this guy, this Pharisee, Nicodemus, and we'll learn more about him here as we read. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believe in him may have eternal life. And I know you know this part. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
So what's happening in our scripture? There's a lot going on here between this, this Pharisee having a conversation with Jesus. He's, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is like a combination for, for our government of the Supreme Court and Congress. So he's got a lot of swing and a lot of pull in a higher uh, Jewish rule. He comes to Jesus at night for a conversation. A lot of scholars believe that the night time frame is significant here for one of two reasons. One, maybe Nicodemus just wanted to keep his conversation with Jesus in secrecy. He didn't want to offend his brothers in the Sanhedrin. He didn't want to offend or look weaker to anybody in the community, so he came at night. The second idea is that, is that Nicodemus came because Jesus is a busy dude. He's out, he's performing miracles. He just cleared the temple, and he wants some time alone with Christ. And so Nicodemus comes in and he affirmed to Jesus that he was a teacher from God because of the miraculous signs that were being done. But Nicodemus is essentially asking Jesus to confirm who he is here. Jesus replied to Nicodemus not regarding his question to to grow his intellectual status, but regarding his heart to grow belief in Christ. Jesus said that you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand this. Asking, how is it possible for a man to be born when he is old? Now again, scholars argue about this. They're arguing, is Nicodemus actually physically confused here? Is he confused about the physical process of a grown man entering back into the mother's womb and being born again? Or the second idea is is that he is just asking, am I too old to start over? Am I too stuck in my ways? Jesus asserted that a person can only enter the kingdom of God if he is born of the water and of the spirit that spiritual birth has its origin in the spirit of god when nicodemus wondered how this sort of birth was possible jesus wondered how nicodemus could be israel's teacher and not understand and jesus asserts that what he says is true because he's been to heaven and he can speak of heavenly things then jesus opens up and he compares earthly things uh, with moses lifting up the snake in the desert now this is a story that takes place in numbers chapter 21 i know you've all read it just this morning because numbers is a gripping book okay but numbers chapter 21 the israelites are complaining They're complaining about the wandering in the desert. They're complaining about the lack of food or the lack of water. They're complaining about the conditions. So God sends venomous snakes. That'd be terrifying, right? Like you're like, oh man, Lord, I just don't, I'm just looking for some food. Ah!" Okay, there's snakes now pouring out and they are coming. They are biting and they are killing the Israelites. So all of a sudden the Israelites start, start repenting to God, start repenting to Moses saying, God, we're sorry we didn't mean to. So God instructs Moses. He doesn't take away the snakes. But he instructs Moses to build a bronze snake hoisted up onto a pole so that when people are bit, they may go and see the bronze snake, be reminded of God's goodness, and not be killed. Jesus is obviously making this a parallel vision of of what's to come for Christ himself. And Jesus then speaks of God's love for the sinful world and how he gave his son so that all who come to him by faith would not die but have eternal life. There are, uh, all of these verses kind of boil down into one major idea that I want us to try and capture this morning and I want us to try and follow along. And it's, it's this idea that, that I believe Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. And he said, I, I would like to say this about our scripture this morning, that the Christian life is not about the rules that we follow, but it's about who we follow. That the Christian life is not about the rules that we follow, 
but it's about who we follow. And I believe that there are two major lessons that Jesus is trying to teach to Nicodemus in the scripture this morning. And the first one that I believe he's trying to tell Nicodemus is that you need to own your limits. You need to own your limits. It's not enough to just know where my limits are, but I need to own them. I need to know where they begin and where they end. And you've probably heard the statement before, do more, try harder. And this is not a bad statement. I can hear my coaches screaming at me, do more, try harder. I can hear them to to motivate me to, to want to be better as a person and to be better as an athlete. And this is a great motivational tool, the do more, try harder motto. But when we apply this to the Christian journey, we take the cross and our Savior out of the equation. We essentially make it a Christless Christianity. We basically make a moral development to-do list where if we accomplish the tasks that God likes, we will achieve heaven as he excuses our sinful past based on our merit. This is where we state, if I obey God, God will love me, which develops a faith background that says the religious things that I do and how well I do them equals my relationship with God. And this is exactly what Nicodemus was doing in his profession. As a Pharisee, And as a professional in the knowledge of the law of Moses in the Old Testament, he was, this is what he did for a living. He had a list of the rules that he was to not break, and as long as he kept them, his relationship with God was good. That if they obeyed God, God would love them, that the religious things that they do equals a relationship with God, and then Jesus comes in and shares something completely different with Nicodemus. And the thing that I kept kept wondering all, all week this week was, why does Nicodemus not get this? Like, why, why doesn't he understand? I mean, obviously this is Jesus, right? I mean, obviously we, we, see, we see the obvious portion of Scripture because we've seen the finished work of Jesus. Nicodemus hadn't. We can see how the story is finished, but Nicodemus couldn't. Nicodemus has seen a lot of false prophets. He's seen a lot of real prophets, too, who come and claim, but he doesn't know how Jesus' story ends yet. So we cannot blame Nicodemus for his skepticism here in our scripture this morning. And this scripture is not meant for us to pass blame on Nicodemus for his lack of faith right now. But this scripture is to help us see our lack of faith, lack of trust, and to help us own up to our own limitations. You see, I bet a lot of us in this room have probably all been involved in church for a little bit. We've probably all read or maybe even heard or maybe even seen on a plaque at Hobby Lobby This verse here in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this verse alone should help us to not be tied to our list, but tied to our Lord. This verse should help us see that our due has already been done. This verse should guide us to see Jesus instead of guiding us to a self-righteous, self-interested, and self-reliant way to heaven that does not exist. We place too much trust in ourselves we place too much power in ourselves we place too much control on ourselves because that is what a moral to-do list will do in our lives we develop a sense of power over our destination we cultivate a sense of control in our outcome we can we grow our own sense of status and build ourselves to be more than we were made to be we'd like to see our moral to-do list as a spiritual to-do list Because we secretly think that that God may use our good deeds to cancel out our sinful debt. We think that our moral development will help God see that in us instead of our sin. 
And we'd like to believe that somehow we have to play a role in our own salvation. We'd love to see that. But God uses Jesus to cancel our sin because we can't pay the price. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful debt. He sees his perfect son. See, God sent Jesus so that our only role in salvation is to accept what Jesus has done for us. Invite him in and ask Jesus to save us from ourselves. You see, Nicodemus seemed to think that Jesus would simply lead him further along in his good religious life. But Nicodemus lacked a spiritual life. And I think too often we will pursue the good life rather than the Christian life because it's easier to be good than it is to be Christian. Because no one will stand in line to criticize you, ridicule you, or disapprove you of your good deeds. But the line gets long when people know that we love Jesus more than anything else. While the law of Moses guides, it does not give It has the power to reveal sin, but only Jesus has the power to remove sin, restore identity, and rebuild us. It's a process of renewal. Last week, we talked about Jesus died for our shame. This week, Jesus dies not just for our shame. He dies for our renewal. Being Being so covered in sin, Jesus doesn't just want us to lay those at the cross, but he wants us to be built up there as well. Owning our limits is necessary if we are going to choose Jesus. The Christian life is not about the rules that we follow, it's about who we follow, and we need to make it a priority to own our limits. We also need to understand the second lesson that's happening in the scripture, not just, not just Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you have to know where your limits start and stop, but you have to trust in the limitless. This goes back to our question from last Sunday. If you were here, you, you would recognize this question, but I asked the question last week of, do we really truthfully honestly trust Jesus more than we trust ourselves it looks like in scripture that Nicodemus seems to trust himself more than he trusts anyone and this is where Nicodemus starts to wrestle with the truest form of his identity he has identified himself as a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin leader of the Jewish people but he has yet to identify himself with Jesus Nicodemus doesn't see that he is lacking anything here So Jesus says this in verse 5 to Nicodemus to help him see that he is lacking something. He says this, verse 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here, Jesus is offering Nicodemus a remedy to a problem he doesn't know existed. It's Nicodemus' moment of loving the little years thought he had everything going right and Jesus comes in and says actually here's something I want to speak into your life here's something you need to marinate in here's something that you need to be convicted by Jesus's words here are a call to turn from sin and receive life from the spirit through a new spiritual birth Nicodemus did not simply need a second beginning he needed a different beginning new birth by the spirit And here Jesus talks about water baptism is an outward sign of the inward reality, but to be perfectly perfectly clear, 
to be perfectly clear, the outward sign is not how the inward transformation happens. Inward transformation of salvation comes only from Jesus. And this is what he's telling Nicodemus here. Being born again of the Spirit is the remedy to our inherited and rightfully merited sinful lives. It's not just trusting Jesus with the everyday things, but it's trusting Jesus with everything, trusting Jesus with our entire lives. Last week, we all came and we approached the cross with sinful rocks. With sinful rocks. Things that we were ashamed of. Things that hold us back in our relationship with God. And these were fantastic and it was an emotional moment to watch everybody come up and drop their rocks. But Jesus doesn't just ask portions of our life he asks for the things that you kept secret last week he asks for the rocks that we kept to ourselves this one says fear because sometimes I'm too afraid to admit in front of others how badly I need Jesus When Jesus calls to a a sense of renewal, he's calling for the entire body to be renewed. And it's it's a trust of everything that we are. Trusting Jesus not just with our finances, but with what's gonna happen in the future. And I think trusting Jesus takes on a couple of different forms for me. Maybe you can relate to them. But if I'm going to start trusting Jesus more, if I'm going to start trusting Jesus wholeheartedly, I have to start by trusting myself less. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, this does not mean to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. It goes back to our last point of owning my limits. You see, knowing what I am capable of, both on the positive and the negative sides of that coin. I know what I'm capable of because I am a child of God and God has gifted me in special and significant ways. God has gifted each and every one of you in special and significant ways. We are capable of great things to happen for the kingdom of the Lord through us. But I also know the negative side of what I am capable of where my sin starts to take the place of my Savior, where I see more of myself and I see less of Jesus. So if I'm going to trust Jesus wholeheartedly, I have to start trusting myself less. And once I take that trust off myself, there's a lot of things vying for it. So it's an immediate take it off of myself and place it onto Jesus. It's not enough. It's not enough to just take the trust off of ourselves, but we must immediately place it into the hands of Jesus. So what does it mean to trust Jesus? Here is my definition of what does it mean to trust Jesus. Now this may not be, you may be sitting there going, that's not theologically correct. Well, I'm not a theologian, I'm a family pastor at a church. So just build a bridge and get over it, it's fine. I've been waiting to use that in a sermon sometime. I never thought it would come out. That didn't happen first service. So what does it mean to trust Jesus? Trusting Jesus is believing that Jesus is greater than anything else. Trusting Jesus is believing that Jesus is greater than anything else. Thus believing that his work is greater than ours. Believing that his plan is always the right plan. And believing that his death is greater than our sins. 
Now, there are a lot of verses in the Bible about trust. So I found the ones that I've highlighted in my Bible. Yes, my Bible is a workbook. Yours should be too. It helps me find things easier. So I wrote down some passages here that, that really helped me understand this idea of trusting Jesus. Psalm 13, 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Psalm 33, 21, in him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. I love this one because it simply means that when I trust in Jesus, my heart is able to rejoice. It's built to do that, but I'm not always able to do that. But when I put my trust in his holy name, my heart is able to rejoice. Psalm 20, verse 7 some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. It's easy to talk a big trust game when life continues to hand, hand you hiccups of interference. But what happens when life gets really, really loud? Where does our trust run then? Sometimes my trust runs out of Christ and back to me to the one who's not faithful, not worthy, limited, instead of allowing my trust to rest in Jesus, the one who is limitless. It's easy to talk a big trust game when we're here at church and it's getting nicer outside, it's, everybody's kind of in a better mood. It's easy to talk about trust when we're in the middle of just some small ripples But what happens when life gets loud? There is a family here in our church who has helped me see a lot, helped me learn a lot about trusting Jesus. I've asked them if I can share their story this morning. Luckily for me, they're not here. But I did ask permission. So. Their names are John and Amy Chipman. And they have helped me see what trust in Jesus really looks like. Their youngest daughter, Brooklyn, was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is a birth defect that affects the normal blood flow through their heart. As Brooklyn was developing during pregnancy, the left side of her heart does not form correctly. And the left side of the heart cannot pump oxygen-rich blood to the body properly. This past week, Brooklyn went through her third open-heart surgery. She's three. Surgery was extremely successful, and they are resting and recovering in St. Louis together. And if you'd like to keep up with their journey, if you'd like to follow along, pray more specifically for them, here are a couple spots to do that at. They have a blog which they update periodically, but they have Facebook that they update as much as they can. It's called Hope for Brooke. It's a great spot to go on, encourage them, love on them, pray for them specifically. But I'm always encouraged because it seems like every time they post something, there's something in the middle of it praising God. This is a post from this last Sunday. 
Surgery was on Tuesday. They write, praising God today that he is so close and so real. Our comforter and our ever-present help. He is so good. He has shown himself big in so many details of our journey with Brooklyn. And I have no doubt the coming days and weeks will be no different. This other post is from their blog and she writes, God has been so good to us. He has been present in every moment of this journey with our sweet girl in the joy and in the pain. In the good stuff and in the darkest of days. He knows our Brooklyn even better than we do and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that he has a plan for her better than I can even imagine. This is what trust looks like. This is what true trust and reliance in the only one who is limitless looks like. It's about owning our limits and trusting the one who is limitless. It's not about what we can do, but it's about who we are because of what's already been done for us. And I love that Nicodemus' journey doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop at the end of verse 21. He doesn't go on his way and we never hear about him again. No, we hear about him a couple more times. We hear about Nicodemus in chapter 7. He's actually sitting with some of the Sanhedrin leaders and they're talking about Jesus. And Nicodemus sticks out his neck and he says, you know, I think, I think maybe we should, we should give him a fair trial. So they start accusing him. Oh, you must be from Galilee too. But then we pick up Nicodemus' story at the end of chapter 19 in, in the book of John. Chapter 19, verse 38 says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. See, Nicodemus' life was changed at the cross. It was changed so much that he was no longer going to Jesus at night. But he was coming to see the crucified Savior during the day. And publicly stating in front of his brothers in the Sanhedrin and in front of the crowds that are around who he stands for, who he trusts more than he trusts himself. His trust shifted from himself to his Savior. At the cross, Nicodemus knew his limits and he knew who was limitless. At the cross, Nicodemus knew the remedy that Jesus was talking about, the new birth through the Spirit. He noticed that his to-do list is no longer a list to get him into heaven, but a list made in response to serve the King, Jesus. At the cross, Nicodemus learned that the hard work that pays off has already been done and paid for you. At the cross, Nicodemus discovered that salvation is not found in what we do, but in what has already been done for you on the cross. Our greatest need is to look at Christ more than we look at ourselves because the gospel is not our work for Jesus, but the gospel is Jesus' finished work for us. You know, there's lots of times when I'm, when I'm thinking through the rocks 
when I'm thinking through the rocks that are sitting in my life, when I think through the sins and the shame that's happening in my life, maybe I'm encountering some of those test moments of trust. When I think about, does Jesus really love me? When I, when I think about that, when, when, I, when I ask the question, does Jesus still love me in all of my mess? I'm not clean, I'm not perfect. I work at a church, but I am not perfect. I am far from it. So when I, when, I, when I have to ask myself, does Jesus still love the messed up version of me? I don't look at what's happening now in present day life. I don't look at all the things that are happening here. I don't count all of my blessings, but I count the blessing that matters the most. And I look at the cross. And I look at what happened on the cross. And I go, you bet he does. He still loves me. And he still loves you. You see, following a moral code will make us nice, but following Jesus makes us new. Let's pray. Father God, God, we are in awe that you still love us. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Father, thank you for giving us a limitless Savior that nothing that we have on our hearts and our minds deep into the depths of our soul is off limits for Jesus. God, nothing is too heavy for him. Nothing is too gross for him. God, you sent him down so that we can not just get rid of our shame, but so that we can gain a renewed life. Father, thank you that we can trust in you always, even when life gets loud. Father, I pray that you would work inside of us Help us to be changed. Help us to be new. And help that to be noticeable. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.